0: Thank you, Brother Jerry. I love that brother's sense of humor. I do. It's a great pressure valve. We need it. God built us that way. One of my favorite old country comedians uh, was Jerry Clower. And he used to constantly say, a merry heart makes like a medicine. And it does. Praise God for that. We desperately need that. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3 this morning. And why are you turning there? Uh, It is, uh, in in hearing Brother Jerry's message last week, I really, really wanted to uh, preach on faith. Um, And had... uh, Said, well, you know, I I have a uh, a message on faith that I could easily slip into and that'd be wonderful. And uh, you know, praise God that that his people might be blessed by that. And then I remembered hearing Brother Mark say that that uh in the coming weeks he suggested that that he might do that. So that that let me know that I wasn't supposed to. And uh there's something that God has been on my laid on my heart for several weeks now, maybe even a month or two, and uh, we're going to look at that this morning, and uh, you'll notice that it, it goes right in line with what Brother Jerry was preaching last week. Uh, he talked about how there were some who... Did not believe that there was that repentance was necessary. Some didn't even believe that Jesus Christ was God and that believed that you could still be saved in spite of that. And uh, brother Jerry preached a very strong message against that. And praise the Lord for that! Uh, Praise the Lord for that. We uh, we shouldn't come after that kind of thing with an axe, we should come after it with a chainsaw because that destroys the faith. Cheapens the faith, and as a result, leave people dead toward God, dead toward God. So this morning we want to look at the test of true repentance, the test of true repentance from Luke chapter three. And you know that's uh, <clears throat> that is a big issue today. Again, we have those who believe that repentance isn't necessary. Uh, you rarely hear anything about it in the church today. Uh, you rarely hear any message that includes such things as repentance. I was uh, reading some time ago Christianity Today magazine, and uh, and this was an old one, and I, I keep all that stuff. I don't know, probably none of you in here remember the sword of the Lord, or uh, well, Roger, you might. But uh, <laughs> it was an uh, uh, old periodical, and, and those brothers told it straight. They told it straight. I've, I still have a stack of those at home, Roger. I go back through those and read them every now and then. In uh, Christianity Mag- Magazine, they, were, they had, uh, someone had gotten together nine evangelists slash scholars, men who teach in seminary, And they were asked to give a 250-word statement on uh, what is the gospel message. And and these were men who were selected uh, because they were either evangelists or they were selected for their erudition. They were scholars uh, who dealt with this kind of thing every day. And uh, interesting enough, out of those nine statements, um, 250 words each, uh, only two of them mentioned repentance when describing the gospel message. And of those two, one didn't give a definition at all. The other one did give a definition, but he called it a synonym of faith. Faith. Turning repentance from a uh, a negative to a positive um, the bible doesn 't teach that doesn 't teach that at all, but that is a snapshot that is a window, a picture of evangelicalism today. It really is when you have nine men whose business it is to preach the gospel, and they first they started by saying. Well, you know, it's a very, very daunting task to do this. Well, I don't know why. <laughs> I really don't. I, but they said it was, and uh, if you read their statements, you you kind of see why they said it was. <laughs> okay, uh, but but it was amazing uh, that they they left out repentance, and and you know, I guess uh, there are many many preaching models. Um, I praise God for. Uh, the one that he graciously led me to. Uh you know, the a popular one is a joke, three points and a poem. And uh <laughs> and uh and I don't do that one very well. Uh he he led me to the one called Exposition where you line upon line teach God's word and uh I thank him for that. Um, there are many, many models, but I would hold up for the church today. Uh, the model of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, according to Matthew 11, uh, was the greatest prophet, the greatest among men that were born of a woman other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And John was a preacher of repentance. That was his message, a preacher of repentance. And since John was the forerunner of the, the Lord Jesus Christ, we would do well to search out John and his message, and we are very, very thankful to Luke for giving us a snapshot of the type of preaching that John the Baptist did. Now, I'll tell you in advance. I'll warn you in advance. I'm I'm not real good with the with the uh, with the the blanks. Brother Terry does that, so I I kind of put them up there uh, for you. Don't don't penalize me if I don't fill in all the blanks. Uh, Jen, Jen would be happy to share them with you. Her and, her and Dan can email those to you. Uh, ho- hopefully you'll get them all. But if you don't, you know, it's okay. It's okay. Because I'd rather you not be distracted with the blanks and miss what God says. Amen? Amen. All right. So we're going to look at John's preaching this morning. John, John the Baptist Um came as the forerunner of the Messiah, and the Jews uh would have really been in tune with John uh, when he was born. Gabriel showed up, that would have gotten their attention uh There was this miraculous birth by this elderly couple uh that that was beyond childbearing age and and so God had intervened obviously. And so the Jews would have been intimately familiar with John. No doubt the story of his birth and the miracle of that circulated outside of his family, and they would have been really in tune. And then 30 years later, John shows up preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, indeed as the forerunner of Christ himself. Now, we won't uh, read the entire Passage for the, the sake of time, we will start uh, with verse 3. And he came into all the district, he, John, came in all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance. A baptism of repentance. And we'll interpret a little bit as we go along. Uh, baptism of repentance uh, would be better translated a baptism. Baptism because of repentance, because of. You see, there are those that have taken that in Acts 2.38 out of context and teach a message that baptism saves you, and it doesn't. It doesn't. It is an outward expression of what's already taken place in the heart, in the life. So better translated to baptism because of. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, this is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord to make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will be come straight and the rough road smooth. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. Now, our first point, we want to talk about true repenters and the test of true repentance. Uh, God has been dealing with my heart in, in recent months about tests. And there are all kinds of tests in the gospel. They're all over the place. And the last time I preached, I preached on Matthew 7, uh, the judge not passage, and that was one of those tests that Jesus Christ gave. Here John gives us the test of true repentance, and we want to look at true repenters. Point one, true repenters reflect on personal sin. They reflect on personal sin, and you find that in what we have just read in verses 4 and 5. John the Baptist sets the standard for all of us And we can learn how to communicate the gospel to unbelievers by looking at the pattern John laid down. We learn that from John that repentance is at the heart of any gospel message. At the heart of any gospel message. And what he's talking about here is heart preparation. And he's quoting Isaiah. Heart preparation. Notice what he says. It says... Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Well, the pathway, spiritually, the pathway of the Lord is the human heart. The human heart. That's how he comes into a life. And so what John is talking about, he's talking about the pathway of the heart. We are to reflect on personal sin. We are to examine ourselves In light of what we've heard in the gospel message, in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us, true repenters reflect on personal sin, personal sin. Look at what he says, every ravine will be filled up. Those are the low things, the the dark things, the, the depravity, the depraved things in our lives, in our hearts. Those things are to be brought up to the light, as it were, and examined in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those low things, and he says, and every mountain and hill will be brought down. Those are the things of pride, uh, the high things of the heart, pride, self-exaltation, self-will, self-fulfillment. All those things have to be brought down. Uh, Self-righteousness. You know, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good guy. And Lord, you know, I know some that are, I'm better than most, and and I know you know some that, that fall into that category, so I'm a pretty good guy, and surely you would accept me as I am. No. True repenters reflect on that pride, And offer that pride up before God. That's self-righteousness. All our righteousness, Isaiah says, is filthy rags. Anything we can do ourselves that we think make us right with God, only draw His wrath, only draw His condemnation. And that's even true after you're saved. There's nothing you can do for God that He can accept. Any more than you could do for him before you were saved, that he could accept. He wants to do what he wants to do through you. See, our efforts don't count. So the high things have to be brought down. And then he talks about the crooked things, the crooked being made straight. The word... For crooked, there is scoliosis, it's where we get our word scoliosis, a curvature, or anything perverse, twisted, deceitful, devious, lying, manipulating. You know, that sleight of hand that you use at work that you think, well, I'm a little slicker than that guy, so I'll just set this up this way, and he'll walk right into this. Now, some of y'all know what I'm talking about, (laughs) Absolutely, positively. It happens every day. happens every day. He said those things, those crooked things, have to be made straight. And then the rough road made smooth. That's any kind of hindrance, any kind of obstacle, anything that clutters a clear and smooth path, anything that obstructs the Lord Jesus from coming into the heart, his entrance into the heart. It could be self-love, apathy, indifference, lust, unbelief, etc., etc., etc. Jesus taught on this. Hold your place there and turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Love that sound of Bible leaves turning. There's nothing else that sounds like that. It's wonderful. Distinct sound. Luke 13 says, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mixed with their sacrifices. So apparently these Galileans had come in to offer sacrifices in worship, and Pilate went in there or sent his soldiers in there and killed them in the blood of the, the worshipers mixed with their sacrifices. And they said, oh, Lord Jesus, isn't that a horrible thing? You know, why would that happen? And, and you see, you've got to understand that the Jewish mindset would say, well, they must have been great sinners. They must have been great sinners because... Uh, the Jewish mindset was that any great calamity that would befall you, that would come up on you suddenly, was a thrust of God's judgment because you were a great sinner. A great sinner. You see, the Jews did not believe that uh, Adam's sin was passed on to us. It was it only affected Adam. And the rabbis teach that right today. That's why they believe they can that you can be made righteous by your own efforts because they don't believe in original sin so they would have been asking this question with that mindset it's like John chapter 9 the beginning of John chapter 9 they said well who sinned this great sin the parents or who that this child was born this way and Jesus straightened that up and said neither neither child was born that way for my glory for the glory of God. But the Jews would have had that mindset. Verse 2. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? In other words, do you think that they're worse than you (laughs) because this calamity befell them? Do you somehow take a position of ascendancy and a superiority over them, thinking that you are more righteous because this happened to them? He said, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, them were worse culprits? Than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will also or likewise perish. So Jesus was a preacher of repentance. Repentance. It's the Greek word metanoia, it's a compound word. The first part of the word means a change. A change. The last part of the word is the word for your mind. So it's a change of mind that results in a change of action and a change of attitude. That's what repentance is. Back to our text. John was a preacher of repentance. And he comes into this Jewish setting, and they thought that they were already righteous. They thought they were already part of the family of God. And he said, you're not in. You're not in. Just as these Gentiles who want to become Proselytes who want to convert to Judaism have to undergo a baptism. You have to go undergo a baptism also because you're not in. You're not in. So John preached repentance. And true repenters reflect on personal sin. Reflect on personal sin. Point two. True repenters recognize divine wrath. They recognize divine wrath. Verse 7. So John, so he began saying to the crowds who were going, okay, the tense of the verbs here let us know that this is typical of John's preaching. They're either in the present tense Or they're in the imperfect tense in Greek, which means that this was a continuous action. This was the way John preached all the time. And John preached for at least six months before the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene. So this was typical of his preaching. This was not just a one-time message. So he begins saying to the crowds who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. You know, I believe if if John were around today, he wouldn't be invited to many uh, many conferences to speak. <laughs> John, John John probably wouldn't get many invites. He wouldn't have been on the the circuit very much, would he? He wasn't the greatest man because of his warm and fuzzy personality. Exactly. <laughs> you know why John? Some people think well, John was just so harsh. Let me tell you why John was the way he was. John understood that there would be shallow repentance. John understood that. Okay? There was shallow repentance in John's day. There's still shallow repentance today. Now, how do we know there was shallow repentance in John's day? Because when the Lord Jesus Christ, after he ascended and sent the Holy Spirit, how many were in the upper room? 120. That was after John's preaching, hard, strong truth, after the Lord Jesus' preaching and miracles, when the time came for him to send the Holy Spirit, there were only 120 in the upper room. And that in the face of strong preaching. You still had, obviously, shallow repentance. John chapter 6, verse 66 says, After Jesus spoke deliberately hard sayings from that time forward, many of them walked away and walked with him, what? No more. Shallow repentance was common then in the face of hard, strong preaching and miracles. What would we say about today? Where the message becomes, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. Or, don't you want to try Jesus as if he's some thing that you put on like a jacket, and if you don't like it, you can take it off? you know? Or, don't you want to receive Christ? Now, I understand what people mean when they say that. I do. I understand what they mean. But let me tell you what that does. That places the sinner... In the position of sovereignty and Christ standing there with hat in hand waiting to be received. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thief on the cross. Did he say, Lord, I receive you? I accept you? No. What did he say? Lord, when you come into your kingdom, just remember me. Please remember me. You know, I was, uh, my brother-in-law died a few years ago, and he called and asked me to come to Kentucky to see him. And uh, he uh, had lived a a hard life, hard life. Uh, Come from a family of, of alcoholics. Uh they were hard working people. They worked hard and and then at the end of the day, every day every day in, in some of the liquor stores in Kentucky you can drink. You know, we Kentuckians know about booze. Uh <laughs> made a lot of it uh myself. But I <coughs> I'm gonna stop, honey, it's okay. <laughs> <But> <laughs> But uh, you can drink in the liquor stores, You know, I mean, there's actually a bar in the liquor store. You can just go right there. And, and they would drink until they, they'd work hard all day. And then they'd, in a barrel factory, the barrels were for that Kentucky sour mash to age. And, and they would work hard all day long. And then they'd go to the liquor store and drink until uh, their, the women folk came and fetched them home because they were too drunk to get there. And that was the way they lived. Uh, and, uh, and he, he was dying and had, had cirrhosis and, and some other things going on. And he, he, he had asked me, my mother called and said, uh, Buck, that was what we called him, Buck wants you to come see him. And I think you ought too, because, uh, you know, it don't look good for him and you ought to come and see him. And uh, you need to tell him about Jesus. I said, well, darling, you claim to be a preacher. Why don't you tell him about Jesus? You're right there down the street. Nobody's immune to this. <laughs> Nobody's immune to this and uh, she said well i think I think he'd receive it better from you. okay. so I went to see him, and uh turns out that my sister you know his his wife you know she she has always been one with rose colored glasses on. I got all of her straightforwardness uh, <laughs> she always had rose colored glasses on and it's a shock to you isn't it and and she uh she hadn't even really told him about the prognosis that the doctor had given you know that that he was dying literally and and i walked in and i said uh, he said jay thank you for coming he said uh you know i've been really confused because the church i grew up in and You know they're telling me uh, that I have to learn the Apostles' Creed, and when I learn that, I'll be saved. And and then uh, Josie, that's my mama. That's what he called my mama. Uh, She tells me that I have to speak in tongues, or or I'm not saved, and I'm I'm really confused, and I don't want to go to hell. And uh, I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, are you aware of the prognosis? And he said. Well, they say that I could get better. I said, let me help you. Uh, unless God intervenes with a miracle, you're going to die. And it ain't going to be too long. That's the reality of it. Uh, so you, you want to prepare for that. And there's only one way to do that, and that's to repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said, well, what do I do? I said, well, I said... Uh, I shared the gospel with him, and he said, yeah, I know know those things. I said, okay, then cry out to Jesus and ask him to receive you. Ask him to take you. I didn't ask him to receive Jesus Christ. That wasn't what that was about. Ask him to receive you. Uh, Just like that thief on the cross, remember me. True repenters reflect on personal sin. True repenters recognize divine wrath. Divine wrath. Divine wrath. John says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John was a preacher of wrath. Where is that in any message that you hear today? A preacher of wrath. If you drop down to verse... 16, he's speaking of Jesus. He said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, many wrongly teach that that fire is the fire of Pentecost. Ink, wrong, but thanks for playing. (laughs) When the Jews saw fire connected with the Messiah, they automatically thought of wrath. They had plenty of Old Testament testimony to let them know what that was about. So John was a preacher of wrath, a preacher of wrath. For the sake of time, we won't go through these, but there are several, several verses all throughout the Old Testament, including Malachi chapter 3. We will go to that. It's the last prophet in the Old Testament. The last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, the Jewish people knew that when Messiah came, it would not only be fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise and the, the Davidic covenant or promise, but it would also be for judgment. Judgment. All the prophets preached judgment. John preached judgment. Jesus preached judgment. And when you give a witness for Jesus Christ, you have to talk about the wrath to come. It cannot be simply that God loves you and he has a plan for your life. So in Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 5 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord and in the days of old as it was in the former days. And you can read that for yourself on and on and on. And the last prophet, the last prophet before John in the Old Testament, talked about judgment. When the Messiah comes. You can find it again in chapter 4 verse 1. Talked about judgment. So true repenters recognize divine wrath. Recognize divine wrath. Uh, That's what makes forgiveness good news. See there is no good news without the bad news. Okay. There is no good news. You can't know good if you don't know what the bad is. Thirdly. True repenters reject religious rituals as a means of salvation. The Jews were so used to a ritual approach to religion. They believed that you could actually make yourself right by your own efforts. And that Adam's sin only affected Adam. And one of the interesting things about Judaism is it rejects total depravity. Believes that all are inherently good. And so they were quite accustomed to ritualistic salvation. They believe we can make ourselves righteous because no fallenness really passed from Adam to us. Now, there's no rite, there's no ceremony, there's no ritual, no baptism that can save anybody. And Jesus attacked this in the Sermon on the Mount in a big-time way. He attacked their ordinances. He attacked their almsgiving. He attacked their sacrifices. Jesus just destroyed that. He destroyed anything like that as a means of salvation. He destroyed all their hope in ritual. And... You know, being baptized as a baby, baptized as a young person, baptized as an adult, uh, or going through whatever ordinances your churches your church calls for, um, uh, whether it's confirmation or the priest telling you to say so many Hail Marys, or you know, you're going through the beads and or whatever patterns of doing penance they go through light so many candles or whatever it is, has no impact on your salvation. None whatsoever. You know, the, the anointing with oil, they going and getting the olive oil and putting on you. You may as well put that on your salad and eat it. <laughs> it just happens to be the truth. And they get that from James 5 where it says he'll call for the elders of the church and anointing him with oil. Do you know if you look at the, the etymological derivation that's the background of that, what you'll find is that was ointment because part of the, the elder's job in that day was to dispense medication. And, and people have wrapped an entire religion around that thing. And, you know, got, we've got to get this oil and it's holy. Hmm. Really, <laughs> and they grease you up, <laughs> but you might as well put that on your salad. That has nothing to do with anything. With anything, and you see these these Jews. John calls them brood of vipers. Well, he was following the Lord Jesus in that. The Lord Jesus in John chapter eight called him exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing. So he wouldn't have been invited to preach at many conferences either. Uh, But uh, he he was clearly concerned that, you know, you're just like snakes trying to flee from the fire, so you slither down to the Jordan, you slither, slither into the water, and you think that's going to save you. He said, not so, not so. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come by coming down here and slithering into the water? They wanted to flee the wrath to come, but they didn't want any change of nature. They weren't interested in a change of nature. So true repenters reject religious ritual as a means of salvation, whatever that ritual may be. Read it for yourself. Philippians chapter 3 Paul said, he goes down this long list of things, a Hebrew of Hebrews, touching the law, a Pharisee, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, I counted all but dung, all those things that I could do. It's just manure. So when you try to do things that you think make you right right before the Lord, righteous in his sight, what you're actually saying is, Lord, could you please evaluate me by my manure pal?" Well, it's true. Paul said, I counted all but dung, all but manure, all those things that I controlled. That manure hasn't changed. It still smells the same. You can't do anything to make yourself right with God. You fling yourself on his mercy and beg him to accept you. So true repenters reject religious rituals. Four. True repenters renounce ancestry as means of salvation. John tells them in verse 8, he says, Now don't even come down here talking about we have Abraham as our father. Don't even do that. Don't even, just don't even think that. Okay? Don't even think that because that's not going to get you anywhere. Anywhere. You see, the Jews thought that their eternal hope was in their genes because they were Jews. They were the offspring of Abraham. They told Jesus the same thing. They said, we have Abraham as our father. He said, no. He said, I understand Abraham was your father ethnically, but if Abraham were truly your father, you'd do the deeds of Abraham. Abraham wasn't trying to kill God. (laughs) Abraham... Genesis fifteen six says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, are those who are the, are of the faith of Abraham are the children of Abraham. And more time I wish for there. You can find that all over the Old and New Testament. In Galatians chapter three and other places, those who are of faith are the children of Abraham. So, true repenters renounce ancestry as a means of salvation because you were baptized or raised in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. I mean i'm weary of hearing testimonies about uh, Ramona and I took a group of kids at, at church where I was an elder, took them to Venezuela on a missions trip in, in You know, we were working with the the youth leader there, and I said, well, we won't take them until we hear their testimony. We need to hear their testimony because I ain't taking people to the field just because they want a vacation or they want to say they went on a missions trip. That ain't what this is about. So we, we set it up, and we started hearing the testimony of these children, and most of them, a lot of them, had gone to Harrisburg Christian School, which is a very fine school. My daughter went there for the first eight years. And, uh, and, and, and they start by saying, well, you know, I was raised in a Christian home. Okay. I, I, okay, I know what you mean by that, but how's that? What does that have? And it's wonderful, wonderful thing being raised by Christian parents. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking that. But somehow you could hear in that 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 somehow made them righteous. I said, son, what's your last name? He said, Cox. I said, you got a dog? He said, yes, sir. I said, he raised in your home? He said, yes, sir. I said, make him a Christian? <laughs> huh? <laughs> Just because you were raised in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. The fact that you were baptized in an, as an infant doesn't secure your salvation. You have to come to the place of truly repenting where you don't base your relationship to God on anything ancestral, on anything ancestral. The parent's faith does not pass to you, okay? The parent's faith doesn't pass to you. And there are a lot of places, a lot of churches that teach that. They, they, that's why they have baby infant baptism. They say the faith of the parent passes to the child. You won't find that in this book anywhere. Anywhere. Now, unless you think I am picking on Roman Catholicism, and I do call names. <laughs> okay. There are some in the reform movement that believe exactly the same thing. Covenantal theology teaches that exactly the same thing the bible doesn't teach that it's a turnpike save one at a time one at a time god doesn't save crowds doesn't work that way so true repenters renounce ancestry as a means of salvation fifth true repenters reveal the reality of spiritual transformation True repenters reveal the reality of spiritual transformation in their lives. John says if the repentance is real, it'll show up in your conduct. It'll show up in your conduct. Back to verse 8 again. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We don't have time to develop that issue of fruit. But the shorthand version, fruit is attitudes and actions that demonstrate or reflect repentance in your life. Attitude or actions that are righteous, that reflect repentance in your life. They do not gain you salvation. They are the result of salvation. Okay? Fruit, attitudes and actions that reflect Repentance, true repentance in your life. They are not the cause of salvation. They do not effect salvation. They are the result of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We are His workmanship, is the word we get our word poem from. <laughs> it's a master, a masterpiece. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that He has foreordained that we should walk in them. Okay? So the good works are the result of your salvation. They are not the cause of the saved amen we are his workmanship real repentance is the kind that paul wrote to timothy about that god is granting that means it's consistent with regeneration god works that god works that consistent with regeneration so repentance doesn't occur in a vacuum it occurs in the environment of regeneration, so that the Spirit of God is regenerating. And the repentance, then, is reflective of that new life, it shows up in new attitudes and new conduct. And there's a familiar call to repentance, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. You often hear it preached or taught, connected with revival. And there's no such thing in the New Testament as revival. <laughs> It's not there. We talk about it all the time, but it's not there. It doesn't exist. It's an Old Testament standard when the Holy Spirit came and went. In the New Testament, He came to stay. So if our walk grows cold with the Lord, we don't need revival. We need repentance to turn toward Christ and away from whatever else. In Matthew 7, 16 through 20, Jesus gave us the test of true repentance. He said, you'll know them by their fruit. Fruit. And fruit can be defined as attitude and actions that are righteous. If the fruit is there or the fruit is not there, then verse 9 of our text comes into play. The axe is already laid at the, the foot of the tree. That's judgment. If there's no repentance, that person is going to come under the condemnation of God. The axe will be, lay, will be cut down. will cut them down and they'll be thrown into the fire by the angels, the scripture tells us. Wow. That changes your view from cute little angels fluttering around. <laughs> Huh? <laughs> Just kind of fluttering around, you know. And they're all cute and wonderful, and, and, and some of them are females, and you won't find that in here either. But, <laughs> but that changes our view. <clears throat> so there must be spiritual transformation. Now, this is not talking about collective Israel. Because it says every tree that doesn't bear good fruit. It's individuals here. Individuals are in view. Every tree. So any sinner, every sinner is in view here. If there's not the the right fruit, that sinner is going to be destroyed. If there's not the evidence of spiritual transformation and regeneration, that person will come under the condemnation of God. So the evidence of repentance then is righteous deeds. And that's why Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says that God is finally going to judge us on our deeds. On our deeds. He'll look at our deeds. He'll look at the motivation behind our deeds. You can find that in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He'll look at the motivation behind our deeds. He'll look at what you did, why you did it how you did it, etc., 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 and therefore God can judge us based on our deeds. See, there are a lot of people doing some really cool stuff, some good stuff, you know? They're philanthropic, is it did I say that right? Mark? <laughs> okay. Okay. They do a lot of human good, but those aren't righteous deeds. Those aren't righteous acts. Because those deeds don't gain salvation at all. And if the motivation is not right behind those deeds, that being the regeneration that's already happened in the life, then that person is still under the condemnation of God in spite all of that human good that they did. You've been saved unto good works, Ephesians 2.10 says. Now, last, true repenters receive the true Messiah. They receive the true Messiah. And we don't have time to develop this, but if you go line upon line through verses 9 or through verses 10 through 15, you have all these people coming and saying, well, what do we do? Then what do we do? The soldiers came and said, well, what do we do? And John told them, be content with your wages and don't extort people. Extort people. Don't extort money. That's one of the temptations for those who carry weapons, who have the law on their side, is to extort people or bring up false charges. And John says, don't do that. Don't do that. The word actually there in Greek for extort is the word for shakedown. Don't shake down people. I've been shaken down before by law enforcement. I have. (laughs) I had a judge tell me once, he said, Son, there's a fine for that in this county. And I said, And how much would that be? He said, How much money you got? (laughs) That's a shakedown. And I gladly paid it, (laughs) because that's the way it is. (laughs) It's a shakedown. And then, you know, the tax collectors came and said, hey, what do we do? And he said, well, don't don't collect more than what you're supposed to collect. You see, these were Jews that had sold out to the hated Romans, and they were collecting taxes. Rome told them how much they had to collect. All over that, they could put in their pockets, and they were rich, like Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. So he said, don't do that. You see... The first, the two great commandments, according to Jesus, is to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, it's hard to see on the outside that you love Jesus with all your heart, soul, and strength. That's kind of hard to determine for us in looking at fruit. But we can see how you love your neighbor. Because if you love your neighbor as yourself, you go, that's going to show up in your actions. You see, when you're loving yourself, you don't just sit somewhere and contemplate, oh, I love myself. I just love myself. <laughs> no, you don't do that. You, you show love for yourself by the actions that you take to help yourself. You see, you show love for your neighbor by the actions that you take to help your neighbor that seeks help. That person's highest good. You heard Brother Roger talking about love this morning. Love is something you do. Love is an action in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he felt this tingling sensation roll down his spine. that he felt a feeling that he felt when he, that he had never felt before? No. Love is something you do. He loved the world so much that he did something about it. That's love in the Bible. And so, to love your neighbor, you're taking action that seeks that neighbor's highest good. That's true love. It's not that butterfly thing in the bottom of your stomach, darling. (laughs) Love is something you do. I'll pay for that one. Love is something you do. It's an action. It's not a feeling. Feelings are wonderful. Don't get me wrong, but it's an action. Something you do. So true repenters last receive the true Messiah. Look down at the end of our text. John says in verse 16, John answered and said to them, as for me, I baptize you with water. Because, you see, they would have been thinking, well, you know, what about John? You know, what about John? John, are you the Messiah? And they even ask him, what about you? And you read that in John chapter 1. Over and over they ask him, and more and more he ratcheted up his answer. Till he finally said, no, I am the voice. The voice. I am not the word, the Logos. I am not that one. I am the voice. The word existed before the voice spoke it, and it will continue after the voice is silent. He said, I'm not the word. I'm the voice. The voice. And in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, which we read, he's that voice of one crying in the wilderness. The voice. So they would have been suspicious whether John was the Messiah. John never claimed to be the Messiah. He said, I must decrease and he must what? Increase. He always pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Always. So what is John saying here? He says, but one is coming... And Jesus was described, the Messiah was described that way all throughout the Old Testament, the coming one. One is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals, the lowest job in the household, for the lowest slave. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Okay? So I can only do a human thing. I can baptize you in water. And I can do that. I can only do the human thing, he's saying. But the one who is coming, this is a statement to the deity of Jesus Christ. He said, the one who is coming is mightier than I. That one will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the Holy Spirit, or he'll baptize you in fire. Judgment. So he will either save you or judge you, one of the two, That is God Almighty. He's the only one that can do that. I can only do the human thing. I'm baptizing you with water. That's what John is saying there. He goes further. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly cleanse, clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. You know, all through the the third world, they still winnow grain. And you can see it over there. They take these piles of grain, they have a hard surface, and they have these flat-looking shovel things, they're very flat, and they thrust it in under that pile of grain, and they throw it into the air. And the wind blows the chaff to one side, and the grain being heavier falls to the floor. And they collect that grain and store it, and they burn the chaff. That still goes on right today. And that's what he's talking about here. And notice he said he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor so everyone will be dealt with. Everyone will be dealt with. There will be no exceptions, no exclusions. No one will be left out. You will either be burned or burned. One of the two. And it will all depend on your relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. To the Lord Jesus Christ. True repentance. Repentance was shallow in John's day, and it's still shallow today in so many areas. Especially in the face of much of the preaching that you hear today, which you can't really call preaching. I mean... All you got to do is turn on the tube and listen to Joel. You know, not the prophet Joel, <laughs> but it's an old steam. I do call names. <laughs> and it's, well, you know, I can't tell you about the last days or anything like that, but I can encourage you. What in the name of heaven is that? <laughs> The tickling of the ears. And Paul wrote about that. The day will come when men will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears will heap to themselves false teachers. And here you have this huge, huge auditorium full of all these people. Many of whom are strutting their way toward hell and think they're too good to go. Because nobody's telling them the truth. We indeed are to witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our responsibility. But the bad news is part of the good news. Okay? And repentance, without repentance, Jesus said, no salvation. No salvation. Would you stand?